just hearing that guy's voice in the dark, realizing that, uh, you know, there's no hope here, you know, that, uh, that, that affected me the rest of my life. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome to another educational edition of the Stigma-Free Vet Zone. We are here on the banks of the Milwaukee River in West Bend, Wisconsin. Today we are heading over to Sarasota Springs, New York to catch up with former Army Huey helicopter medevac pilot Bob Nevins. But Bob, uh, that was his experience in the military. Today, Bob has translated that experience in the military into his work as one of the leaders in equine therapy as it applies primarily to trauma and suicide with veterans, uh, medical frontline workers, uh, first responders. And I'm just going to read you one introductory paragraph, short paragraph from his website, uh, Alliance 180. That is the name of Bob's organization. Alliance 180 is a peer-to-peer, purpose-driven program that aims to prevent suicide for fellow veterans, first responders, and frontline healthcare workers facing the effects of trauma through a transformative equine experience. They are serving all of New York uh, and their counties and beyond. You serve anybody all over the country, I believe. Uh, and it's about more than just your mental health. It's an equine experience with an active opportunity for change, when you feel like the system has repeatedly failed you. It's a chance for you to do a 180, 180-degree turn, gain a new perspective, and initiate positive change. You'll learn the universal language of the horse, which is based on trust, which a lot of us veterans certainly are aware of that term, and we combine it with science-based research that ties the physiological response within the human body when it undergoes trauma. So let's go out to Sarasota Springs and welcome in Bob Evans. Hello, Bob. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm excellent. Looking forward to this conversation. For yeah. you know, to be honest, we've uh, spoken quite a few times over the years and always enjoyed it. But let's uh, <clears throat> let's introduce Bob Evans to the audience. Uh, give us a little background on where Bob is from and where you grew up. Well, actually, I'm in Saratoga Springs. Oh, Sar- oh yeah, Saratoga. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't be in Florida, yeah. would you? Saratoga. Yeah, right. Sorry, Saratoga <laughs> yeah. Springs, and, New uh, York. Yeah, and I, I grew up in uh, Queens, New York. Uh, lived there till I was about 16, and then transitioned to upstate New York, where it was uh, quite a cultural shock being a street kid going to the country. But uh, it all seemed to work out. And uh, went to high school up there at a 
you know, the family of four, four brothers, two sisters, you know, my dad actually worked on Long Island at uh, Republic Aviation and uh, he was building the F-105 Thunder Chief, which wow. uh, was used extensively in Vietnam too. Wow. Yes, it was. Uh, just uh, as a curiosity, so were you from a borough, one of the boroughs of New York? Yeah, Queens. Que- is that, that's Queens. one of the boroughs. Yeah, yeah, we always hear of that. Uh, yeah. Interesting. I lived between uh, Kennedy Airport and LaGuardia Airport, which kind of fueled my interest in aviation, which has always been pretty much lifelong. I used to go to Kennedy Airport when I was uh, 10 years old. I'd get 15 cents from my mother, go out to the airport on the bus, spend the day out there, check the phone booths for money to get home. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I was addicted from a young age. And that was just to watch the planes take off and land, I'll bet. Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness! Yeah, yeah, we did that at Mitchell Field in Milwaukee. It, it's still a marvel oh, yeah. today when you when you stop and think what uh, what a plane does to get itself in the air and stay up there. Yeah. So now mm-hmm. you you your your mom was with you all this time and moving around. Uh, yeah, my mother, father, you know. Yeah, your mother, family, family. family yeah. Any interest in pets, sports, dogs, all that sort of thing? Um, no, no. Really? Being a city kid, I had no idea what a basketball was when I moved to the country. And <laughs> at least with, at least a basketball with air in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So now you, you, there comes a time where you are going to be entering into the military. Now, is that a choice for you? And, and after that um, entrance into the military, what were your expectations going there? Well, you know, I, I'm at that age where, wow, the... The war's still going on here. I'll probably get drafted. I I really want to be a pilot, you know. And and I happen to see this ad uh, in the post office for helicopter pilots. And I said, well, gee, that sounds pretty interesting. I can't afford to go to college at this point. So I think uh, I might want to pursue that to kind of, fund my aviation career if I'm going to have one. And uh, so I wound up uh, joining the Army, went to a delayed enlistment program, went to uh, Coochie School at Fort Eustis after basic training. And then from there, I went to flight school. So, you know, you're not a lot of thought about the war at that point, you know, It'll probably be over by the time I get there. So but, what, what uh, year are we now, Bob? This is 1969, 70, when I went to uh, flight school, July of so what, oh, So July now while, while, while in 1969, while you're in flight school, you're more into the fascination of learning how to fly and cruising around. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, yeah. it's got to be, you're probably not even thinking of what's, uh, what's outside of the base there. No, no, and it's just... A lot of interesting stuff, a lot of stories, you know, because the instructors are all Vietnam helicopter pilots. But, you know, we're just trying to survive and get through flight school. Uh, we started with uh, probably 100-something candidates. And uh, by the time they eliminate people, you're talking about half the class. You know, wow. so, you know, just trying to get through. And, uh 
So now, but now you do get through, and you you graduate, yeah. and you become a helicopter pilot. Mm-hmm. And how did you start to prepare or find out that you were receiving orders to go to Vietnam? Uh, well, as a helicopter pilot, uh, uh, you're classified as an obligated volunteer. You know, you are going. You don't really have too much of a choice unless they assign you to something else. You know, but. Uh, so we pretty much knew we were all going to Vietnam, but it, I tell you, it really doesn't sink in until you're on the plane heading there. And then you say, wow, this is, this is real now. Yes. And, uh, a, little, a little scary. Yeah. I think all of us at some point remember that moment when we're crossing the veil from safety into the combat zone, even though it may not be the actual combat zone where you're not expecting an immediate missile. But there, there is that, it crosses over. A lot of guys think about that when the door opens for the first time on foreign soil and they, they smell the diesel fuel or the jet fuel or whatever. But right. that, that, that seems to be a significant moment when people realize, uh-oh, this is for real. Yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or, or Saratoga yeah. Falls Springs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now so, you get your orders, and you're, you've are you crossed over the veil, you're in the combat zone, and take us so, off. So, yeah, there. well, wind up in, uh, you know, was a long bend where everybody goes, and yeah. uh, uh, from there you're assigned to different units around the country, and uh, so we're just hanging out, waiting for our duty assignment. And uh, uh, I mean, the stories will start from the beginning because my roommate, who my whole class went over to Vietnam, then we dispersed from there. But my roommate and I were in Long Bin. And uh, one of the things that people were telling us, whatever you do, don't volunteer for dust off. <laughs> you know, if you want to stay alive, just don't do that. And uh, so we say, okay, well, unfortunately, my roommate, he decides, hey, let's do that. You know, I say, you can't do that. I got to keep an eye on you. And um, so he signed up for uh, medevac duty and I had to kind of keep an eye on him. So I went along with that. But unfortunately, he was killed in the first three months we were there. Wow. Let me, let me let me just mention for the audience dust off. Explain dust off and medevac. Pretty much the same well, thing. Yeah, you know, dust off medical evacuation in Vietnam, picking up the wounded. Uh, you know, at least trying to. You know. right. uh, so, you know, I wound up uh, with the 101st Airborne in July of 1970, and right about that time. Uh, which a lot of guys would know about this, uh, Ripcord was going on, and that was a pretty significant uh, uh, encounter. And I was, she's brand new in country, and that story goes, I'm on final approach into Ripcord, and this is my orientation ride in country while the fire base is being overrun. And uh, somebody fortunately calls our helicopter and says, hey, uh, who's with you? And the guy said, oh, I got the new guy with me. And they say, break it off, break it off, we'll take it. And that was okay with me. Because <laughs> my instructions were, if I get hit, fly 060 out to the coast and try to find your way back. 
Gee, that's no way to start. uh, uh, Let me interrupt uh, (laughs) for a second. Uh, Daniel, this is for you. Bob, there's something clicking in the background. Do you hear? Oh, sorry. Is something snapping or... Yeah, I got it. Okay, so good. Okay, let's get back to it. So, so uh, mm-hmm. uh, explain Operation uh, Ripcord. Was that when they went into Cambodia? Uh, no, Ripcord was that big battle with the 101st Airborne in uh, June, July of uh, 70. Mm-hmm. That's where Chuck Norris's brother was uh, killed mm-hmm. during that area, that, that battle up there. So that was a pretty big thing, and that was one of the last really big encounters uh, I, th- I think for the 101st Airborne, and then things started slowing down a little bit, but not enough. It was slowing down a little bit, but you would go on yourself to being shot down um, by yeah, a- an RPG, yeah. And, and, yeah. and then have some other pretty, what I would call traumatic experiences. Maybe you could share a little bit of that with our audience. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm sure we all have our war stories, you know, uh, I was, uh, we were doing a medevac, uh, going in for a medevac hoist when we took an RPG at about 100 feet and rolled inverted and crashed and burned, lost half our crew. And that turned into a, a big deal because shooting down a medevac in Vietnam was like uh, officer down. I mean, it's like the war stopped. Every Cobra within 100 miles was on the scene and you know, they were doing everything they could to keep everybody's head down and, and get us out. So. Uh, uh, let me ask you this. That Red Cross that's on a medevac helicopter, is that uh, for you a target? Or is that a, is that something that uh, people uh, will, by the Geneva Convention, actually pay attention to? No, that was definitely a target. You know, they, <laughs> I'm not they laughing. Unarmed, unarmed medevac coming in, you know, we can stand up and shoot at that one. Yeah, you know? right. But, uh, but we, you know, most of the time we had... Uh, Cobra gunships come out and back us up. And that was always, uh, you know, a blessing for us, you know, to know that they were at least they were there and trying to get everybody's head down so we could get in and get out. All right. But, um, so but, now, you are know, you mostly flying over jungle, rice paddies, mountains? Uh, yeah, it's all, it's all jungle and mountains, mountains. Uh, and up yeah, in I-Corps, you know, so really no place to go but uh you know so that was a, a big deal and you know, probably most of the guys in our unit experienced such similar things i think just about everybody every pilot in our unit had a purple heart or was killed the year i was there and uh but you know it was something that you really felt was worthwhile right. really got into it right. the the only other story I'll share with you is, uh, uh, I had mentioned this to you once before, which kind of works into my program now, but uh, we got a call three o'clock in the morning during uh, monsoon season, seven U.S., multiple gunshot wounds, request urgent medevac, and we, we, Flew out there, it was night, bad weather. We found the guys on the side of a mountain with a strobe light and the artillery guys are shooting out illumination rounds so we can, you know, see what's going on out there without hitting a mountain. And, uh, but the weather was so bad, we couldn't 
we couldn't get in. We were trying to do this hoist mission on the side of a mountain and, you know, it's not only is it dangerous, but we're going to kill ourselves and everybody on the ground if we crash. And so, so we tried it. We, we just couldn't get in there and get into a stabilized hover to get that penetrated down. So we, we broke it off and uh, we came around and, you know, we, I call a guy in the ground and uh, I, of course, can't remember the call sign now, but say it's rucksack two, three, you know, and I, I said, you know, rucksack two, three is dust off. And, yeah, go ahead, dust off. I said, hey, listen, there's no way we can get in there at this time. So we're going to break it off and we're going to come back at first light and uh, see if we can uh, finish this off. He says, Roger, dust off, no problem. He says, we didn't think you guys would make it this far. I said, okay, no problem. So as we start to try to exit the area, I just happened to say on the radio, hey, hey, Rucksack, uh, this is dust off. Uh, are you guys going to be okay till first light? And it was a moment of silence. And the uh, guy comes back and he says, well, dust off. He says, I got three guys that won't make it a half hour. Dead silence in the helicopter. We all simultaneously say, oh, shit. So I look over at the aircraft commander, because I'm a fairly new guy here. I look over at the aircraft commander, and he glances over at me, just nods his head once. <clears throat> so I get back on the radio, and I say, rucksack two, three, is dust off. Stand by for a pickup. And uh, <clears throat> the guy's got his mic still keyed, and I hear the guy say, those crazy bastards are coming back, you know, and, uh, and that mission had more of an impact on me than all the other stuff that happened, because I realized, wow, this is, this really is, you know, life and death, and uh, if, if we don't get in there and get these guys, you know, then we haven't really done our job, we haven't completed the mission here, so, we don't know how we did it, but we got back in there and uh, got into uh, a hover and got the penetrator down and got three guys out. And uh, one guy, unfortunately, died en route to the hospital, but uh, two guys made it there and then went back first light and got four more. But uh, and to me, that's the kind of stuff that was going on all the time. But just hearing that guy's voice in the dark realizing that, uh, you know, there's no hope here, you know, that, uh, that, that affected me the rest of my life. And, uh, and that's what kind of got me into the business I'm into today. (laughs) And for us, you know, it has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with that guy on the ground who, you know, who's our age and uh, doesn't want to be there any more than we do. And doesn't want to die. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. W- wants more life. Yeah. That's, a, that, yeah. That, that's an excellent point that you bring up uh, that it had nothing to do with politics because it, politics isn't even an issue. What's an issue is just the survival in whatever you can see as far as you can see. Yeah. Right. Wow. Right. So now you get ready to continue. Uh, obviously you, you, you continue your, your, um, uh-huh. 
your duty there until it's time to go home. So now when you're going home, what are your expectations now that you've seen this thing, this experiences or these mm. experiences that yeah. you are, are you mm. thinking, and I don't want to lead you on in this, but is there any thought of when you go home, you're going back to life as it had been before the military? Or do you remember what you were thinking like what was yeah. going to be home when you got home? No, I, I think I was just glad to be there. I was feeling a little guilty that I had to leave um, and I think I sat in my room for about a month trying to figure out what the hell just happened to me, <laughs> you know, right. just, you know, it was such a different world. You know, you go from pumping adrenaline every day to nobody even knows you were gone practically, you know, so. Or cared or knew what you were doing or was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. especially with these very, very uh, life or death situations. So you're, you're back yeah. home and you're spending this time by yourself, a little bit of isolation, trying to readjust. Yeah, just trying to figure it out. And, but, you know, I knew I had to kind of move on and if I was going to have an aviation career, you know, I would have to get out of the house. And uh, so I actually went to California, went to a, another flight school, got a fixed wing rating added to my helicopter rating, you know, and then there were, of course, no jobs to be had for uh, the next 10 years. But uh, but not to get off on a tangent here, but I actually st started putting together a helicopter ambulance program back in the Albany, New York area, back in the early 70s. And I was a little bit ahead of my time there. And now they got them all over the yes, country. Do, and, uh, sure. You know, but I, I was one of the first people to kind of initiate some of that stuff. And, uh, but eventually I went to, uh, got a job and started flying for the airlines. And I spent 24 years as an airline captain. Did and, you really? Uh, I didn't know that part of your story. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I, I did that, but but then this is where the, it really starts to change because by 2011, and I got stories there too, I was the last flight to leave Boston the morning of 9-11, and they stopped the airplane behind me and let me take off, and I wound up in Canada for like, uh, gee, I think we were there for almost a week, you know, isolated up there. As a, as a, what would they say, rerouted uh, flight to clear the airspace? Yeah. yeah wow. You know, and, and they, uh, so. And, and during that so, time, during that week, did you uh, eventually must have found out what was going on? But when they cleared you to take off and you were in the air and were being rerouted, did you understand what was happening at the time? Well, uh, yeah, I didn't know, but uh, your instincts kind of kick in because the, uh, I was actually from Boston going to Toronto anyway, but uh, about halfway there, the controllers come on the radio and they say, check cockpit security, check cockpit security. So that's something you don't normally hear. Okay. So we knew something had happened. We knew one airplane had already hit the World Trade Center, but we didn't know if it was an accident at that point or whatever. And um, so... So I knew something is definitely off, you know? And uh, so I called a flight attendant and I said, listen, something's going on. We don't know exactly what's happening here, but uh, do not let anybody 
come into the cockpit at any cost. And uh, she said, okay, Captain, or my dead body. And I didn't want to have to say, you know, you might be right. Yeah, right. I told the first officer, I said, listen, something's going down here that we don't understand. Give me the crash axe. And I said, if somebody comes through the door, okay, we're not going to have time to talk. And he said, I'm right-handed. Let me do it. I said, okay, but, you know, don't hesitate. Because I knew just because the controllers couldn't tell us what was going on in case somebody was already in the cockpit, you know, but you could tell. So anyway, and believe it or not, this guy, my co-pilot's wife, worked at the World Trade Center, but she didn't go to work that day. Wow. Isn't that weird? So we wound up in Canada and and, uh, we, we stuck there for seven days. Wow, what an incredible story. That, yeah. that is an incredible story. And there, was, there were, of course, so many, we don't even know all the different stories of, of yeah. uh, you know, like that, that came out of that experience. Yeah. And, and so that yeah, was your last flight as a, as a commercial airline pilot? No, no, that was, I was the last person to take off from Boston. Of Boston shut, the air, shut the airplane, airport down after that and, and wow. cleared the skies, wow. you know. So anyway... But, you know, we were all ready to fly the next day because it was just like Vietnam, you know. Yeah. Shit happens, but, you, just you know, on. you got to keep going. And, uh, yeah, th- that's really true, and that's a good point, too, because I think a lot of us come home from war, from the military experience, uh, not understanding that, to a certain extent, we have shut down. And, and you can't get up every day and think about what happened yesterday. You have to be prepared for what's now, what's happening now, or what mm-hmm. might happen. <clears throat> And always yeah. on, always on yeah. guard, always on hyper vigilant, hyper alert. So yeah. uh, even the things that are horrible to witness uh, have to be shut down. You have to just calm them down and and not not focus on them, not pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I don't want to take you off on your tangent. I I, I love the tangent <laughs> that you're going off on. But uh, just out of curiosity, I don't want to spend a lot of time there. Did what did you think of landing on the Hudson River with that uh, that other pilot? Uh, yeah, he, that he, was he, that was quite a story. Uh, yeah, he, he did a good job there. Yes, you know? he did. And you know, you don't have you only have a two three minutes to make a decision here. And yeah, I, he I, did I, all the right stuff. You know, so it was very fortunate. So now you're you're back home. You you take us to the end of the commercial airline career mm-hmm. and. Let's get well, on to talk about uh, Saratoga uh, Warhorse or uh, Alliance yeah. 180 and your beautiful, wonderful, helpful therapeutic healing, and I love it, yeah. um, equine therapy. Okay, so, so here's how this story goes. <laughs> um, so I'm still flying for the airlines, but um, um, reading and seeing, you know, all the Vietnam veterans that are taking their lives, you know, it's year after year, reading headlines, you know, it's the third year in a row of record suicides. This is, this is crazy, you know? And, uh, and I happen to see a guy one day on TV and he's demonstrating how to communicate with horses. Let in me interrupt language. for just a second, Bob. Go ahead. Something's clicking. <laughs> I yeah. use, it's not like you're snapping your, your wrist. Yeah. Or, that's my nervous energy. Yeah. Oh, I get that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, I wish there was a word we could say for for to remind you without interrupting. Okay. So so sorry about that. But Daniel, yeah, just click take out that and let's um, uh, 
let's get back. So go on, Dan. Uh, go on, Bob. Uh, okay. So I see this guy on television, and he's demonstrating how to communicate with a horse in the horse's language, not, you know, human talk, but the nonverbal language of the horse. And I think, wow, this is, this is really fascinating. And uh, so I call up a friend of mine in Saratoga, and I said, hey, can I come over and uh, talk to your horses? <laughs> he says, yeah, sure, come right over. You know? So I, I go over and I said, I want to try this technique to see if it actually works. Well, to make a long story short, I, I get a horse from him. I don't know anything about horses. You know, and I take this horse into a round pen, a corral that he has, and I go through this procedure. And right on cue, this horse is responding to me with this silent language, this body language. And, uh, and at the end of the procedure, the horse crosses his round pen and comes over and nuzzles me. And, uh, and it just kind of blows my mind that, wow, I had no idea this was even possible. So, so that was the start of it. And then later on, I'm still reading about all of our guys, you know, we're losing more guys to suicide than we did in Vietnam. This is, this is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Yes. So I, I said, gee, you know, one of the things when I did that procedure with the horse, it was so unexpected, the results and the bonding that took place. I wonder if that might help somebody else. Well, that started doing it where I just had some veterans that I knew that were struggling and I brought them in and they had the same experience that I did. Very, very powerful emotionally. And then I just started doing this and then I had to go out and start a nonprofit. I had to quit my airline job because I was getting so busy and I wound up putting 800 veterans through this program. But it wasn't until I got to about 500 with my team, because I have a whole team and I got a, an equine expert that worked with me and I went and recruited her to come in to help me because I didn't really know how to teach the procedure. I just knew how powerful it was. And uh, so we teamed up and uh, put all these veterans through, but they were all saying the same stuff. And it was things like, I feel forgiven. I don't know what's happened. Something has changed inside of me. And, uh, and they'd go on and on about that. And then I realized really what was happening. And, and the way I explain it now is anytime a normal human being has had a traumatic experience, and it doesn't matter whether it's war sexual assault, could even be an accident, whatever that is, what actually happens in, in my observation here, it's like an emotional circuit breaker pops. And when that circuit breaker pops, it's just like if lightning hits your house and the lights go out, all right? Well, the circuit breakers are designed to do that. And what is happening this when a circuit breaker pops, this emotional circuit breaker, it leaves you in this survival state. And when you are in that survival state, none of this other stuff, the normal aspects of life, really are registering. And this is why, you know, 
people are going off into self-medication, all these things, because the nightmares, the lack of sleep, all of that stuff is all because they're in survival mode. Unfortunately, they don't even know it. Yeah, let me ask you, Bob, when you came home yourself, when you returned from, from your active duty from Vietnam, did you, in retrospect, have any of these uh, reactions, the, the nightmares, the difficulty uh, sleeping, anxiety? I mean, uh, you know, some of the, the yeah, isolation, you, 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 that's right. You mentioned the isolation when you came yeah, home, yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, but you, be, feel, you seem to have a, sorry, sorry, I don't want to over talk you, but you seem to no. have a little bit of a connection to these things, not just by virtue of hearing about them, but by virtue of having experienced them a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I think we all have them to some degree. And, uh, but I was so fixated on the aviation stuff that I just kind of dove into that head first and, uh, and stayed there, you know, but it's always in the background. I mean, Hardly a day goes by we don't think about somebody that we knew or we miss or whatever from those days. You know. That you were in it. But, one, uh, one of the interesting points you make, and I think this is very, very important for, for the people in our audience, uh, a lot of us got into what they call workaholism, which is your, similar to what you're experiencing or explaining in the sense that we found something in life that took up our time. It, it, it kept us occupied, it kept our mm-hmm. mind occupied, so we didn't think of those experiences for more. But eventually, whether it's using alcohol, drugs, uh, work all, workaholism, uh, eventually when these things stop, those memories are there, those experiences are there mm-hmm. to come back, and uh, they're, they're not going to go away until, for, for most of us until they're resolved. So you're, you're, you actually have that experience similar just by becoming an airline pilot. That took up all of your fascination, all of your mental time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I talk about that circuit breaker, you know, you don't know that the circuit breaker has popped. In fact, when I, my first meeting face-to-face with uh, the veterans that, that come, you know, I say, listen, I, I know you think, this is not going to work because I've done this so many times. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're going to say. But on the first night I have them here in Saratoga, I said, I said, I just want you to think about something and you don't have to answer, but just think about this. How long did the incident last that's put you in this perpetual state of disconnect? You know, whether it was, 50 years ago in Vietnam or a guy from Afghanistan or a sexual assault victim. And I don't ask him what happened. I just say, I just want to know how long did that incident actually last? And I think the record was 21 seconds, you know? Oh yeah. One hour, one minute. This is what had happened. And I say, let's see what you don't realize is that's when your circuit breaker popped but you're so busy just staying alive, you don't even realize that the lights went out and you've been living without that all these years. So if you can trust me for one day, I'm going to give you an opportunity to have this experience with the horse to kind of reset that circuit breaker. Now, I can't do it for you because it's your circuit breaker, but I'm going to show you what you can do, how it works, and then you have this opportunity to do this for yourself, which is really the best part. They do it for themselves. And uh, so we just 
teach them what needs to be done. They go in, have this experience. I mean, we can go into some detail about it, but well, really- let me, whole- let me ask you this, though. Let, let's go back just a little bit to yeah. this understanding of when the circuit breaks. You know, you, you describe it as, you know, you don't realize that it's broken because you're, or, or, or the, the circuit or breaker has popped because you're, yeah. you're involved in other things. But how would any of us, we don't have a built-in psychiatrist that's telling us, oh, be careful, you just popped a, a circuit. At home, right. when the circuit goes out, the lights go out. There's an indication. But a lot right. for a lot of us, I mean, I was 20 mm-hmm. years old. You're not even aware that there's there's been a psychological change or that there's been a physiological change because you're, you're not even thinking about that. You don't expect that. You're not aware that these things can happen. Something has simply happened and now you're this person and you just continue on without a full understanding of what has taken place. But, but before you get these guys to come out to the ranch, to, if you want to call it the ranch, the farm, yeah, the farm, they don't just show up at your door. Tell us, share with us how they get in contact with you and what is the first conversation that okay. uh, that, that leads them to say, yeah, you know, I'm going to go see this guy. Okay. Well, remember, I've had like 800 veterans come through this program already. And usually somebody that's calling me, it's a referral from a fellow veteran who's been here. And that's the way I do it because you really can't advertise, you know, and nobody trusts you anyway. They're not going to come. So when I hear from a friend who says, hey, you know, just call Bob in Saratoga. I can't explain what happened to me. But, and they see the difference in their friend. You know, it's pretty dramatic, you know, that the kind of life is getting back on track. So, so I'll get a call and call sounds something typically like this. Hey, man, uh, a friend of mine <laughs> said he, he, he came to see you and, uh, and, uh, I don't know anything about freaking horses, but uh, maybe I should, you know, I thought I'd check it out or whatever. And I'll just let them say that. And then I'll say to them, so uh, how are you sleeping? And, and they'll come back to me and they'll say, what are you kidding? I haven't slept in 25 years. See, and then they know that I know, <laughs> you know, and then the conversation just goes from there. You don't have to know anything about horses. I'm going to show you you know, or my team will show you how this works. We're not here for show and tell. It's all confidential. It's all paid for. You know, I went out and started that nonprofit. So meals, airfare, hotels, all taken care of. Don't worry about it. Eliminate all the excuses that somebody has for not coming. And if they're hurting bad enough and they've been through all the therapy and all the, unfortunately, medications, I mean, guys rattle off medications like you wouldn't believe, and I can't even pronounce the names. But uh, these are the folks that I know need to come and experience this. I don't even use the word therapy, Mike. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I say it's an experience, just like the experience you had that popped the circuit breaker. I didn't have that experience. You did. So it's your circuit breaker. But I know it's a physiological problem now not a mental health problem. You know, you may be displaying some mental health uh, issues, but it's only because you're emotionally so disconnected, you know, and I hear it all from the wives and, you know, so so I don't get into history with them. I just say, so why don't you just come, you know, trust me for a couple of days, you're going to be here. Okay. So then we, I, I turn them over to, uh, uh, Janelle, who they'll get to meet, who's uh, my uh, 
system program director, and she'll coordinate all the airfares and all that stuff. We'll get them here. And then it's just bing, 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 three days. Night, pick them up at the airport, take them out to dinner that night. I only, I limit it to six at a time because they need to get to know each other a little bit. And this is when I have this conversation with them about this is what's going to happen. We're not making any promises. It's up to you. You're here. You might as well uh, go through with the procedure. And then uh, we take them to the farm on day two in the morning, and we do a classroom presentation. We show them what the language looks like, how it's so different from dogs or anything we do, because horses are, are, are flight animals like deer. So they are looking at you and you really are a predator and they don't know if they can trust you or not. But when you transcend the language barrier in this round pen through this procedure and the horse recognizes, oh boy, this is not really a predator. This is somebody that, that I can trust. The horse wants to bond with you for its own survival. And when that happens, that is really powerful emotionally because up until that point the veterans always say later I didn't believe it was going to work for me or I didn't I was really uh, you know nervous about it well it's okay but all that goes away after they've had this experience and I tell you I've had some pretty emotional experiences from we've had doctors nurses navy seals you know They'll come out of that round pen crying, so relieved that, uh, you know, they can feel again. And, uh, and it has nothing, to, and that's why I don't use the word therapy. It's an experience. You got to have the experience just like you had the experience that popped your circuit breaker. That didn't would, happen to anybody else. It happened to you. Right. you know? would, would it be fair, Bob, to say that uh, outside of therapy, and I agree with you, our mental health, if we would get more into the habit of using the word education, even though this is an experience, you still need the education. <clears throat> and again, going back to your example of the circuit breaker, you don't go to a circuit panel and stand in a puddle of water with bare hands and try and turn a circuit breaker <laughs> back on. So I mean, right. you have to be educated on how to do this properly. But the other <laughs> exactly. element that you're sharing that's extremely important is that uh, they're gaining that trust on the phone call. And it's so incredibly important for veterans, for many of us, uh, and I'm sure for anybody who has been through a traumatic experience or a difficult experience, that whole element of trust, that word is just so powerful for all of us. And you're you know, giving that to them on the phone call just by that, there's that, that whole thing. I can talk to anyone, but you can't BS me about this stuff. You can't BS me that, that you know what's going on. I mean, the trust is there just by virtue of the conversation. So that element that in that short period of time, these guys are going to, or, or, or women, whoever the person is, is going to actually get on a plane and come and visit you is, is remarkably based on that trust. And in your website, you refer to that peer-to-peer -peer element. And that peer-to-peer -peer mm -hmm. element is always fundamentally based on trust. Right. And I didn't realize, again, when I started doing this, you know, up to the first 500 veterans that come through and I'm hearing the same thing over and over again and watching these dramatic turnarounds and getting calls from the families saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, well, when I connected with this Dr. Porges, Stephen Porges, and he's the 
author of The Polyvagal Theory, which is all about the physiological response to trauma. He looked at some of the videos that I, we have, and he said, do you know what you're doing there? I said, no, it's just, <laughs> it's just really happening. He says, well, the first thing you did is you, you established trust with these people. Yes. I said, well, they're, yeah, they're my peers. I said, yeah, but he says, that's crucial because you can't trigger this physiological re, what, what do they call it? Uh, re-regulation of the autonomic nervous system unless somebody's in a trusting environment. So if you're talking at them, forget it. So, so they're going to be doing a study with us on what we do because this could probably be done in a therapeutic office environment if you were able to establish the trust and then walk somebody through this process that we just happen to be doing with a horse. And I don't think it's necessarily the only way to do it, but they're really fascinated with the numbers that we put through and the turnarounds these veterans have experienced. And it's all wars. Uh, like I say, I had guys from Korea go through the program and, uh, and even the latest generation, you know, but trust is the key. You're right. And then when the horse trusts them enough to accept them unconditionally, that's part of how this trigger works and I wish I could say I intentionally started out to do that. I was just doing it as, wow, that was pretty interesting. I think I'll share this. And uh, so here we are, you know. Well, but, 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 but I've heard your story and I've <laughs> spoken with you a number of times. It, it may not consciously have come to you, but subconsciously could it have come to you because you have shared with me, and I think this is very, very crucial. And for a lot of us who do work, who have, who have struggled, after a trauma or after a difficult experience, and, and we've um, faced whatever uh, issues we have and resolved them to a certain extent, or at least substantially, where, for example, sleep or isolation or uh, rage are not uh, terrible problems. We have most of them under control. But there's a great amount of therapy in helping other people, and that therapy or healing or uh, self-satisfaction but do you ever look at some of these people who come out, uh, the soldiers, veterans, uh, medical uh, first responders, whoever you might be helping, and see a little bit of yourself in there? Because you, I remember you, you shared with me that the experience of this, picking up these um, soldiers in the jungle on a medevac on that mountainside sticks with you. That phone call of that person yeah. radioing to you out of the dark to come and get me. How, how does that fit into what you still do, even though you believe you never thought of this before? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you're in a position to reach out and help somebody else, you're really obligated to do that. And uh, But if you're hurting so bad yourself that you can't do it, I understand that. But uh but those experiences from Vietnam just told me that, uh, you know, as long as I've got life in me, you know, there's somebody else worse off that, you know, you can help. And I, you know, I, I don't get into that stuff too much because it's just peer to peer. Right. And, uh, and what, what's amazing here is, you know, once I started doing this and then I started bringing in uh, veteran police officers and that's kind of like, getting out of the frying pan into the fire and they were struggling and they were having the same experiences after coming through the program that I was getting calls from the police chief saying, 
how the hell did you do do that? You know, that it's just amazing to turn around these guys. And then one of the cops actually said something to me one day. He says, you know, I didn't realize how I was in survival mode and I don't really trust anybody. So when I go into a confrontation on the street and I'm going to, you know, I'm already defending myself. I said, he said, but what I realize now is that kid that I'm confronting He's probably in survival mode himself, you know, and he's not going to trust me. And then it just gets out of hand, you know. So he said, so my whole attitude has changed towards, gee, I feel sorry for people now instead of I got to dominate the situation. And I thought that was pretty, you know, interesting on his part. And now we've included doctors and nurses because their suicide rate is climbing. And why? Because they've been exposed to stuff that's really not in the normal realm of life. And they're losing so many patients and they feel guilty about it. They, they feel overwhelmed. And how do they deal with it? Bing, there goes a the circuit breaker. And once you disconnect emotionally, you know, and you don't know you did, and that's part of the problem, you know, then life just kind of starts to spiral down and you look for anything you can to make it easier for yourself. And, uh, and this would also include, and I think one of the elements of our foundation of the work that we're doing, especially with the podcast, is not to focus on ourselves, the veterans, as the center of the healthcare unit, but the family. So when you're referring to these frontline workers, when you're referring to police officers or veterans, we all have to go home to our families. And what's the effect on our families if we are so mm -hmm. focused on ourselves that, you know, this has happened to me, I'm in this problem, I had this issue, I had this trauma. Right. And I think it's right. important to realize that when we take steps that help ourselves, this is very, very comforting to our families if we let them know, okay, I know that you as my family love me and there's nothing you can do for me, but please understand that I don't want you to suffer for this. I don't want you to, to have difficulties. I'm going to go and get help uh, so that they get some relief because they, a lot of times the family has no idea what to do with a family member who's coming home from these experiences. And this includes frontline medical workers that right. the family just doesn't know them anymore. They're, they're different. They're isolated. They're emotionally removed. So right. th these are all very, very important stories. But what I would like you to do, Bob, if you would, in, in the closing minutes, take us through, explain where they would find you, what the name of the foundation is, how they would get in touch with you and what their expectations. Just take a few minutes and, and lead us through that whole process. Okay. Well, the new organization, the expanded organization that I put together is called Alliance 180. It's just all these alliances that are created between man and horse and community and veteran and, you know, all that. And the 180 represents, this is a new direction. You can't keep going down the same old road that's not improving, you know, and, I, and that's one of the issues with the VA, you know. We got to do something different here, you know. So, so what I, I prefer is a veteran who's talked to or a participant who's talked to and somebody else that they know what they're going through, you know, and they refer them to me, you know, and I'll have a, you know, private conversation where you can go to the website alliance180.org and, and, and look at that. But it really comes down to just a, a phone call, a private phone call with me. And then I'll make the arrangements to have somebody come here 
and go through, you know, the program. It's only it's only three days, but it's 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 pretty powerful. You know? nice. They don't have to prove anything to me or anybody else, you know. And I say most of them admit to me that they're afraid of horses. Uh, you know, I said, well, I was too when I <laughs> when I started, but once you do that experience that transition between man and horse it's you know change your life so if we were to go directly to the source do you have a phone number that they can call you uh yeah they can always call me directly on my cell at uh, 518-744-3600 and your website is very very informative again it's alliance 180 the number 180 uh, dot right. org. Uh, yeah. So go ahead and, and I, share with us, uh, you know, uh, some of your insights that you would like to leave the audience with that would be helpful. And I, I, I like the word hope because a lot of times when we have, uh, believe it or not, a lot of us have, as you mentioned earlier, we've gone to alcohol, mm. we've gone to either pharmaceutical medications mm. or street medications, mm. some kind of avoidance for the, the, the issues that we're having that we can't resolve. And then by the time we get to the point of, um, quitting the alcohol because of those problems, quitting the drugs, mm. qu- quitting the divorce rates are up and estrangement from our children, then we have to go and, and find the answers for whatever it is uh, we're reacting mm. to or whatever the reactions we are. So why not do it earlier? Why, why not uh, save yourself all the years and for some of us decades of, of suffering and just find those things that are helpful and beneficial to yeah. uh, healing now or uh, educating yourself right. or whatever the issues are? Right. Well, I think, Mike, part of the, the issue there is you're, you try to get help and you're led into it's a mental health problem. And according to Dr. Porges, polyvagal, all that stuff, it really, you don't have a mental health problem. Your, your autonomic nervous system shut down and your brain is only getting part of a message that says stay alive. And you're so busy doing that that you really don't look outside. And then when somebody, you go and you try to get help and they want to talk about it, you know, you're so emotionally distancing yourself from that stuff that it's not helping you talk about it. So it's not we, only helping you, but it's preventing you from talking about it. Right. And you think, well, boy, I must really be screwed up because they're the experts. Well, maybe the experts are following this path they've been on and it's not really reducing the suicides. So why don't we just try something different, think about something different. And uh, I'm not saying I've got the only answer here, you know, and talking to somebody is is okay, but you know, the bottom line is if if it's not working for you, why do they perpetuate it? And uh, you know, so- I I think what you're really- Go ahead, continue. No, go ahead. ahead. What what, what I'm- Again, this is one of the fundamental reasons for our podcast, and that is what you're explaining. When, the, when as soon as it's identified as a mental health uh, problem, if we're a soldier for whatever reason, you tell us that we have a weakness when we're supposed to uphold our responsibilities and duties as soldiers. And I'm sure this is the same as doctors run up against that same invincible war wall that they're supposed yeah. to be up against. Uh, and police officers, as soon as you create that stigma, you have damaged us dramatically because we are not going to come forward and admit that we have any sort of difficulties. But when you turn it around and say, 
could you actually go through these experiences that you've had without these reactions? And you can teach yourself, get an education to learn how to adjust or react to these, uh, to understand and resolve these reactions you've had. It becomes much less stigmatizing and it makes more sense. Exactly. And, and you're right. And that's what I loved about your whole program from the very beginning when I heard it, you know, stigma free, because you start labeling people and you're the expert and they're the ones suffering. I, I would explore options. If, I would. If, you know, and I figure what you do is really is a gift to get people to be thinking about that stuff. Well, I'm just, I am in the same boat that many, and it's not a boat I love being in, but it's, it's all that reaction. We've been there. We know how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. uh, you have experienced these things. And once we get to a point where we understand it's not a stigma, it's not a mental illness, that we understand that these are just taking mm -hmm. something that you did not experience or expect to experience, that whole idea of expectation, you learn to resolve them. And now when you see other people who are struggling with something similar, you're, you're, you just want to help. You can't turn your back on it. It's, it's really, right. to me, it's getting in touch with the human, the health of the human spirit, not just the health of my own spirit. I don't know if that makes right. sense. Right. So. Yeah, well, Bob you know, Nevins, the, yes, okay. close up. <laughs> give us something hopeful. Something hopeful is there is something out there for you. You know, whether it's, it's me and you'd like to try this privately and experience it, but what you've experienced, you know, and it, the state that it's put you in is normal for a loving human being to shut down having experienced these things. So don't beat yourself up over it. Just go out there and try to find your way out of the darkness. Uh, you know, you're not the only one. I mean, when you see these doctors and nurses now struggling with the same issues of post-traumatic stress, nobody labeled them as mental health cases. They were just normal human beings that were overwhelmed by the circumstances. And I've had doctors, nurses, lawyers, and, and Navy SEALs come through the program, and they all say the same thing when they leave. You know, thank you, thank you, thank you. So... Bob Nevins, it has been an honor, and I am personally going to come out there and visit just because I'm a firm believer that may, maybe you have to do things uh, alternative, what would be considered alternative um, educations in line with some of the other things that you're doing. But this is certainly one of the more powerful um, one of the more powerful educations that you can receive is getting in touch with something higher than just human beings, but that, that whole level of trust in life at a higher level, I think is very, very valuable. But thank you. Once again, your website is Alliance 180. So that's Alliance180.org. And uh, people are welcome to call you if you want to give us that telephone number one more time. Okay, 518-744. 3600. And if you don't mind, try to call me before midnight because I get a lot of these West Coast <laughs> calls, you know, at midnight and they say, hey, man. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's all right. Any time of day or night, it's okay with me. All right, good enough. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. And your comments are always welcome. Uh, go over to Orban Foundation for Veterans.org. And you will find, of course, there uh, immediately the conversation can continue for you if you have a need for the Veterans Crisis Line. And uh, nearby that, the, the crisis line is 
8255 and then press 1. Or just text 838-255 to chat and you will receive the same caring um, response from the people that are waiting to hear from you. But don't stay isolated. Reach out and it's always going to be the person themselves having to make the decision that I want to try something different. I want to take that first step myself. It's the most critical, most important step. Bob has taken it. I've taken it. Our podcast is brought to you in part by a grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation, and you can check them out at www.charlesekubleyfoundation.org. And check, check out their dedication to improve the lives affected by depression. For many of us who have had suicidal thinking, there have been years and years of painful depression beforehand. So check them out. And we want to thank our sound engineer for today, Daniel. And join us again next time on your favorite podcast app, Facebook, or our website, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. For mm. co-hosts and veterans, Aaron and Bob, I am Mike Orban. And remember, as Bob Nevin said, this is educational. It's not stigmatizing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.